Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large collaborative research network focused on precision oncology biomarker research with the ultimate aim of improving the outcomes of patients with cancer. I host Dr. Jamie Holloway, Area Vice President uh, on the East Coast, uh, um, uh, supervising much of the scientific activity in that region because Dr. Holloway is going to take us through the process on how to read the CARES NGS report. Why this episode? Because there's a lot of people out there, community oncologists, patients, healthcare providers, that sometimes get overwhelmed with the amount of information pertaining to NGS reports. So I thought it is timely, it is fitting, it is important to simplify this, bring it down to the important information that are needed to take care of patients and to interpret the results. So I'm very grateful for Dr. Holloway to join me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Before I air this episode, make sure you tune in to all of these uh, episodes I tape. Make sure that you rate, subscribe, review, and refer your colleagues and friends to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I appreciate your support. And without further ado, Dr. Holloway exclusively on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Okay, folks. Well, here we are on the Karis Molecular Minute podcast, and I am pleased today to have Dr. Jamie Holloway with me. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself and and uh, maybe your background and so on, and and what you do at Karis and and how long you've been here. Sure. So I'm Jamie Holloway. I um, I trained at Georgetown University. I did my PhD in their tumor biology program there. And I had the pleasure of of working with some really great breast cancer researchers there where we looked at the interaction of estrogen receptor expression um, as impacted by growth factor signaling in breast cancer cells. After that, I actually took a little time to stay at home with my kids and, um, and then was able to transition into a really interesting role where I interacted a lot with patients and, and worked a lot with patient communities and thinking about how patients and researchers could communicate better, how they could work together um, in really a way that would impact the way cancer patients were cared for. Um, during that time, I actually did quite a bit of work thinking about how to get patients onto clinical trials and how to really connect them with clinical trials that would be most meaningful for them. And so obviously thinking about things like targeted therapies and next-gen sequencing was something that um, I did quite a lot. And so about three years ago, I joined Keras on the MSL team there. So I was um, covering the mid-Atlantic region and the Carolinas and up into the New York area as well, um, just to be kind of a technical and clinical resource for the doctors who ordered um, Keras profiling on their cancer patients, and also to help facilitate the research conversations that would go on as part of our Precision Oncology Alliance and the research collaborative that we have. I have had the pleasure of, of working with a lot of great people at Keras and and now um, am leading a large team of MSLs. Our team grew from about five or six when I started with Keras to now almost 50 MSLs. And so I am one of the three area vice presidents and I lead the MSLs in the Northeast and the Midwest. I'll say you do a mighty good job. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, you know, it's 
It's interesting when you mention about the communication, right? Because I really think, and you know, this is a topic that's really dear to my heart as well. It is really communication is so important with patients. Not not that we don't communicate, but it's easy to understand method of communication to make sure that the patient really understands what we are saying, which is really very fitting to why we're taping this episode, Jamie, because the, you know I wanted to do an episode into how to read the Keras NGS report, which is a method of communication. I mean, we are communicating with the oncologist who is ordering the result. We're also communicating with the patient because as you know, patients could have access to their results and they get you know, 200 page report I'm just obviously uh, joking for listeners, please. Uh, but basically, you know, so we need to communicate effectively. So uh, we both agree on the importance of, of this. So I'm an oncologist. I have a patient. I believe the patient required NGS. I ordered Keras molecular profiling, and I got the results. How do what do I do next as I'm opening the results and going? How do I uh, how do I interpret the results and how, where do I start? Sure. So obviously I'm at a disadvantage because we don't have any visual aids. So I'm going to try to talk through, but I think we can get sort of the big picture here. Um, you know, a, a Keras report is is probably has a lot of similarities with other NGS reports that we would see. Um, throughout the industry, but I know ours the best, so I'm going to speak specifically to that. Um, you know, we try to make sure that the front page has all of what I would consider to be the low-hanging fruit. So if there is any biomarker that's going to have a therapy association, either based on an FDA-approved therapy or maybe one that's um, in some really promising clinical trials, so there's a lot of data already, we're going to make sure that those are featured right at the top. And at Keras, what we've tried to do is make it as easy as possible for the clinician who is just picking up the chart, looking at it, and on their way into the office to speak to that patient. So if there's a therapy association that is um, a result of a biomarker on this re report, it's going to be at the top. And if it's a therapy association where there's a benefit, there's going to be a big green box. So it's really hard to miss. You know, we, we go with the green means go, red means no moniker. If there is a biomarker that says this patient is actually not going to have a good response to a particular drug, that's going to have the red box. And so we want to make it super easy for the doctor to know. You know, there's also a, a box right there at the top that says important notes. And it's really amazing how many people skip over that, but it's an aptly named box. If there's something in there, it really is important and it's worth reading, even if it's kind of a big paragraph, because that's where we might put if there's been a brand new approval and we haven't gotten the IT people to get the new green box on the top, we'll put a note about the approval in that box. We might put a note there about um, a, a fusion that's a diagnostic fusion. So there's not a therapy that goes with that particular fusion. But because the patient's tumor has that fusion, we know what kind of tumor it is. And so that would change the way you would manage the care for that patient. So I always try to remind people to go ahead and read that important note, even though it sometimes just looks like kind of boring text. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. Like when we have a new drug that gets um, or a new mutation, uh, you, you explained that. I want to make sure I emphasize on this for listeners. So... 
Today, for example, the FDA, let's say they approve a drug today that is related to a particular biomarker or mutation. It goes without saying that we cannot update everything today. It just takes more than one minute. What are we doing internally to expedite this and making sure that we report on this? You highlighted the note box we need to look at in case we haven't done this. And then how often do we update and change and do things like that? So anytime there's a new approval of a new therapy that has a biomarker that corresponds to it, those are not surprises to people in the in the community, right? The doctors have been participating in the trials. We've all been anticipating this. We've maybe seen it presented at a large conference. So we have an evidence team that really stays on top of those kinds of things. And if there is a new approval that happens today, our evidence team was already anticipating it several months ago. And so we've been putting in place all of the steps so that as soon as that approval happens, we can prepare to flip the light switch. It's not as quick as a light switch flip because it does have to go through an IT process to sort of update our program. Um, So if it's approved today, it's not going to be on the report with a green box tomorrow um, because that like just routine update takes a little bit of time. But what will happen starting this afternoon, if it's approved today, is that our evidence team is going to be who quality control checks all of the reports, they're going to be looking specifically for that new biomarker and they're going to manually pull any of those cases and then they're going to put that important note. And that will happen for a few days, maybe a week, until we can get the IT solutions implemented to get the report just doing that automatically. That's wonderful. Thank you. All right. So we got through the low-hanging fruits. What's next? So the next thing is the cancer type relevant biomarkers. So those are all of the markers that the doctors are going to want to know, but maybe don't have a therapy association or maybe um, they're not mutated. So for example, if you have a breast cancer patient, a doctor is going to say, is the BRCA1 or 2 gene, are they mutated? Now, if they're mutated, they might be at the top with some note about maybe checking for um, whether or not the patient has a germline alteration, they might be up there with a note talking about um, potential response to PARP inhibitors because there have been some really compelling trials. But if there's no mutation, it's not going to be up at the top, but it'll be at the bottom and it'll say no mutation detected. That way the doctor has the confidence that we checked and there's not a mutation there. Um, Because we do whole exome. That is very important. Thank you for highlighting this. We checked and we didn't find it. That is very important. Right, because we do whole exome and we do whole transcriptome. So if we find something, we're going to tell you. But a lot of times doctors just like the confidence to know for sure we checked. The patients like to know for sure we checked, you know, um, especially if they know there's a therapy that goes with it. They might say, you know, I had a friend who had this therapy. They did really well. Did we check and see if that would be an option for me? And so if we have that, we call those pertinent negatives, Um, If we have that on the front page, then it's really easy for the doctor to know we checked it and for them to then um, give the patient confidence that we checked it. You know, one thing that I found in my time speaking with patients was that they just need a little extra confidence to know that they're just the decision that they're making is not wrong. Um, You maybe can't promise a patient they're making the right decision, but I find that a lot of time doctors will present a couple of options to a patient and you know, my feeling was if I, as a patient, didn't go to medical school, 
if the doctor who went to medical school doesn't know which answer I should take, how am I supposed to make that decision, right? And so, so what I found when I talked to patients was we just talked through why there's not a clear answer and why either one's okay and what factors might make them make that decision. And so I think having those pertinent negatives right on the front really gives patients and doctors a lot of confidence that they're not missing something. Jamie, there are situations where sometimes there are there is more than one drug that is approved for a particular mutation, mm-hmm. as you know. So how are we dealing with this? Are we putting three green boxes, four green boxes? Like how are we dealing with the, um, if, if I'm an oncologist and there's a, we can pick and choose a, a, a mutation and there are three drugs out there, how are we dealing with that in terms of reporting? So if the evidence are are um, suggesting that those drugs are relatively equal in their efficacy and there's not any reason to prioritize, then we would list all three of the drugs. Um, And I think that we list them in alphabetical order. We don't want to prioritize any particular therapy. Um, However, if there is evidence to say one of those drugs is far superior to the others, then that's the kind of thing that we, we discuss with the the key opinion leaders who are part of our Precision Oncology Alliance. We do really heavy evidence, deep dives. And if there's, if there's a clear indication that one of them is superior, then we will either only list that one or we will list all of them, but we'll put a note with the references to make sure that the clinician has all of the information they need to make the appropriate therapy decision. Thank you. Excellent clarification. All right. Moving right along, what else do we do? What, do we, what else do we do with the report? Okay, so the first page, that's where all the low-hanging fruit are. Anything that's important for that tumor type, anything that's important for that specific patient. Um, and then everything else is kind of gravy. There's a lot of extra information in the next pages. And that's where I tend to go when I'm either looking for a clinical trial for a patient who has progressed on some of those low-hanging fruit options or when I'm using it as a game plan. You know, one thing that I think that's great about a report like this is you actually get multiple options. So you get a first clear choice sometimes because it's a big green box at the top. Um, But, you know, most metastatic patients will eventually progress on even really great therapies. And so having a plan of this is what we should do next really helps make that transition to the next therapy a lot easier. You know, if I go back to my patient roots, it's easier on a patient who knows I have a plan when this stops working. I know what my next plan is. I've already kind of pre-decided it. And so emotionally, it's a lot easier, but logistically, it's a lot easier too, because you don't have to go and do a whole nother round of testing to see what trials might be a good option and then see if you're eligible, because all of that time makes it a lot harder for a patient to still be eligible for a trial if they have late stage cancer. So having a game plan to know what to do next is really important. And that's what's on the next pages, where you find a biomarker that, um, you know, just it, it maybe has a clinical trial, or maybe it has a therapy that's approved in some other indication, but you might start thinking about is off-label therapy going to be a good um, idea for this patient? And so you can start looking at all of those other biomarkers to get your next step and maybe your next couple of steps so that you have an idea of how to care for the patient going forward. So so really everything after the first page is um, 
of course, it's clinically relevant, but it's not going to be the fasting. It has it requires additional thoughts, and and maybe it's for progressing patients. Or so if it's a first line patient, probably the first page is likely going to help me, and the following pages are going to be a lot of research and trials and uh, off-label use if I need to use them, maybe. Primarily. And then, you know, after we kind of go through the biomarkers that are listed out really clearly on those next couple of pages, there's a page that helps you think about clinical trial options. And then there's an appendix that has tons of extra information. So it's going to give you information about the genes that are altered so it's going to tell you, you know, where those genes are commonly altered, what the impact of that alteration is. Um, and we also have some additional results that um, I think are really interesting. They are definitely much more for someone who is, is being very thoughtful about sort of later steps in a patient's care, um, where we have things like RNA expression. So you might look to see if there is a clinical trial where having really high levels of expression of a certain marker might be beneficial. Um, I've, I've looked a lot of times for like, um, there's an antibody drug conjugate for the folate receptor. So, you know, one of the things that we do is we'll look and see, did they express a lot of the gene that makes the folate receptor? Because if they did, maybe we go to the folate receptor trial first. But if not, maybe we go to a PERP inhibitor trial first. And it just sort of helps you strategize which trial first. The other thing that we have um, on that sort of back section is what we call an e-karyotype. And so essentially, it's, um, it's sort of a bioinformatic rendering of the chromosomes of that patient. And so you can see where there are chunks of the chromosome that have been copied, and there's way too many copies, or maybe they've been lost. And so, again, that can give you some insight into what's going on in that tumor and maybe things that you might target when you're thinking about those clinical trial options. Is there anything else in the CARES report? I mean, you know, I, I think we've covered the clinical and research. Anything else that you think listeners, again, oncologists, healthcare providers, as they're opening the CARES report, they need to be aware of? Do you feel we covered, uh, we covered it all? So I didn't really talk about specifically the different things that we cover, but, you know, there's a section that talks about DNA. So that's where we would look at the mutations that we find, the copy gains, the amplifications, the losses, the deletions. We, we look at RNA. So we're going to see fusions and variant transcripts. And, and because we're looking at those at the RNA level, we find a lot more than you would find if you're only looking at the DNA. And that's because of some technical issues and then we look at proteins. So we do have some IHC assays that you would use um, when you're trying to make therapy decisions. So things like mismatch repair and PDL1. And those are all sort of listed out um, in order. The other thing that you know will be on some reports are some of the results of our AI. Um, and so we have artificial intelligence um, algorithms that help us to see things about um, how to sequence uh, standard chemotherapy in colorectal cancer patients. So that's what we call full first. And it helps a doctor decide whether they should give full Fox first or full theory first together with Bevacizumab. Um, both of those were approved and there's no direction in the guidelines about which one you should give first. And so our AI can help doctors make that decision. We also have an AI set of algorithms that can help when you have a cancer of unknown primary. 
And so if you have a cancer of unknown primary or you've requested that information, there might be a page telling you of all the tumors that we've looked at that look like this one, most of them are lung cancer. And it might say, you know, 98% lung cancer and 1% breast. And so again, that can give a doctor an idea of um, maybe some additional diagnostic tests that they should do in the pathology lab and can just sort of help direct them to a treatment path for that patient. Maybe my last question to you, Jamie, is, uh, and this is very, very helpful, um, we're adding those, but what are we doing with the, there's about two or 3,000 PD-1s or PD-L1s now, right now uh, being approved um, um, and probably a few thousands on the way. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, with, with so many PD-1s and PD-L1s, how are we approaching that in our report? Sure. So there's there's really mostly four PDL1 um, antibodies that are approved right now as companion diagnostics. And, you know, there's been some pretty nice studies that say for the most part, they they do correlate. The exception being SP142, it has a lot different intensity staining than 28A, 22C3, and SP263. But the way the trials were run leads to the way the approvals are done. And so when the trial was run with a specific drug or a specific antibody, that's the antibody that's the companion diagnostic for that drug in that indication. And we know, again, if we go back to the idea of wanting to make sure that the doctors have confidence in what they're doing for their patients and the patients have confidence in um, what's being recommended from their doctor, we still do the right companion diagnostic in the tumor type, regardless of redundancy. So that means that um, you know, if you send us a tumor tissue, then we're going to choose the appropriate PDL1 antibody that will have um, the, the companion diagnostic in that tumor type. That also means that in some cases, like lung cancer, we're going to be doing multiple IHC assays unless um, you have asked us not to. Um, but, you know, if there is sufficient tissue, we'll do DNA, we'll do RNA, and on lung cancer patients, we'll do a bunch of, of uh, PDL1. Um, antibodies. That way, you know which drug is going to be most appropriate for that patient. And that way, we don't miss out on a patient who might actually benefit from one of these um, immunotherapy regimens. So we, we will do the, we will report on the, based on the assay that was used to approve that specific drug for that specific tissue for that specific histology, pretty much. Exactly. And yeah. so we will make a therapy recommendation only to the appropriate drug with that actual um, antibody. So I'm not sure. It seems like uh, reading the CARES report is pretty darn easy. What's uh, why they're saying reading NGS report is difficult. What's going on? You know, there's a lot of information there. It's, it's easy to get sort of um, pulled <laughs> under by the, the amount of information. Um, you know, we really do try to put the, the most important stuff on the front page and try to make it as clear as possible. And, you know, for those people who do have questions, we now have a fleet of MSLs who um, are always more than happy to walk through the report and kind of highlight anything that, that might be of interest. This is great, really. I mean, yes, uh, I think it is very important to make sure that we simplify things, distill it down to what's really important. And um, I can't thank you enough uh, for uh, being with us on the uh, Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Dr. Jamie Holloway on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Jenny. 
All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Appreciate your support. Please do let me know any feedback. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or email me to cnabhan at karisls.com. I'd like to know your feedback as well as your suggestions about any possible new episodes, new topics that you would like to hear about. And thanks to Dr. Jamie Holloway for joining me and simplifying what some people might view as a complex issue, which is interpreting an NGS report. Couldn't thank her enough. Thank you. And until next time, take care.